Sunday. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 2. So listen to the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to, the, to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. Because they are no more. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now in the name of Jesus and by the power of the spirit. Lord, that as we sit, all of us under the authority of your word, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would do that work of conforming us into the image of your son. Father, I do pray that as we reflect upon these uh, these words in Matthew 2 for a few moments, Lord, that you would just encourage our hearts, strengthen our faith, and fill us with rejoicing at the salvation you have won for us in Jesus Christ, O oh Lord. We pray and ask this in his name. Amen. In the song, uh, O Come Emmanuel, there's a verse that says, O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. You may not uh, think of this uh, during 
uh, this time of the year. But the first Christmas came in the midst, the first Christmas season came in the midst of great mourning and a lot of tears. Jesus's birth, according to the scriptures, cost the lives of many children in Israel. And so if Christmas means anything, it has to mean something for Rachel and her children. The child who's coming brought with it the loss of many children had to be the answer to the cry of those families and of a community once again grieving the confrontation with an evil so great that it would go this far to win. Remember, this is not uh, Israel's first time dealing with a ruler uh, that would go this far. There is, in fact, a wonderful biblical irony in the fact that to escape another tyrant, Herod, God would send his son back to the very place where his greatest act of salvation up to this point had taken place. And so, again, we read uh, in uh, verses uh, 13 to 15 of Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt. Out of Egypt, God had set Israel free from Pharaoh's rule. And now he was about to do another act of salvation, his greatest act of all time. And I want to tell you this morning that what he was about to do was exactly the answer to Rachel's weeping reference in verse 18. To Israel's mourning, to the loss that comes from the sin that is in us and the sin that is in this world. You see, Christmas, brothers and sisters, has to mean something for mourners. It has to mean something for people who have been crushed under the weight of sin and death and all of its forms. It has to mean something for mothers who have lost their children to the violence of this world. It has to mean something for children who have been abandoned by parents and family members. It has to mean something for those in prison who have been wrongfully charged and convicted. It has to mean something for wealthy people covering their hurt and pain with material things. It has to mean something for those seduced by the power of this world into oppressing others. It has to mean something for people whose minds and bodies have been broken. It has to mean something for those who are who are addicted to all sorts of idols, drugs, money, power, comfort, control, and the like. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, but not because Andy Williams sang about it. It's the most wonderful time of the year because in it, there is an announcement to mourners, to people grieved over their own brokenness and the brokenness of the world around them, to people whose eyes are sometimes filled with tears over what they see happening in them and around them. The coming of Jesus into this world is an announcement that God has seen our grief that he has seen our mourning. He has seen the affliction of people trapped under sin and death. And in the same way he came down to set Israel free from Egypt, so he has come to set all of us free from all of the pharaohs that we face in this life and in this world. God has come to wipe away our tears and replace our mourning with joy. Joy, brothers and sisters, that rests in the truth that God has not forgotten us and that he has not forgotten his steadfast love for us. In verse 18, Matthew quotes 
uh, the prophet Jeremiah about the mourning uh, in Israel over the evil uh, that Herod was about to do, uh, that Herod uh, had done. God knew, in fact, brothers and sisters, that this day was coming. He knew the grief his people were going to be under. And so he prepares a word for them uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, a word to a people who desperately need a word from God in the face of their grief. Listen uh, to part of what God says in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But then listen to verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In other words, God is saying, it's not over. Your story does not end here. Weeping will not be your final act in this world. You may be in the land of your enemy now. You may be in the land of weeping now. But this is not your final destination there is, there is hope for you. You will return from the land of your enemy, the land in which you have been made to weep. And why can God speak so boldly to people who are mourning? How can he instruct them to keep their voice from weeping and their eyes from tears? Listen to your God's heart. Again, in Jeremiah 31, verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. The call to keep our voice from weeping and our eyes from tears comes from the Father himself. It is God wrapping his arms around us and telling us, you are mine. I have not forgotten you. My heart is bound to you in love, and I will not let you go. I will show you mercy. I will show you kindness. I will wipe away your tears. And what is the sign of that love? The sign is God sending his son into the world. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our comfort. He is the word of God, the word that says you are mine. I have not forgotten you or my steadfast love for you. Jesus is God's arms wrapped around us in our mourning, wiping our tears from our eyes with the promise of his salvation. Jesus came to tell mourners like you and me the glad news of God's love for us. And so I just want to reflect for a few moments this morning on this question. What is the character of of this love of God that we see in the coming of Jesus into this world that we see uh, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Well, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, God's love is humble. It never ceases to amaze me that the all-powerful God brings his salvation into the world in the way that he does. While men and women are fighting for power and control over the world, God brings his salvation into the world through the birth of a child in a little town of no significance. 
We know it was of no significance because of the quote uh, from Micah in verse 6 where it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The implication is that Bethlehem was the, the least among the rulers, among the cities of Judah. It wasn't thought of as a place from which something great would come. And yet, it was the birthplace of the coming of God's salvation into this world. And all the rulers and most of the people missed it. And they missed it because they were looking for a display of power. They were looking for a, a fire and brimstone apocalyptic overthrow of their enemies. They were looking for God to match Herod or Caesar's power with an equal display of force. But God's salvation doesn't come like that. It comes in a humble act of love in the form of a child wrapped in swaddling cloths, protected from a human standpoint by parents with no real ability to protect him at all. And just like the people of Jerusalem in verse 3 who were disturbed at the announcement of Jesus' birth, we sometimes fail to see and experience the reality of God's love for us because we don't like the way it comes. We don't like the humble way in which God's love comes to us. We don't want to be like Mary and Joseph. We don't want to have to rely on the help of strangers. Who wants to stay in someone else's home in the part where the animals live? Who wants to have to flee from your country and live in another land because people are pursuing you? Now let me bring it home. Who wants to take what feels like the low position and forgive an enemy when holding their sin over them feels so much better, at least in the immediate moment? Who wants to give money away when keeping it means I can do so much more for myself and my family? Who wants to listen to another person's sorrows when I have my own sorrows to bear? Yet God's love comes to us in low places, the places we don't like to go, the places where we feel like the least. It is in those places where we take the position of the least and a position alongside the least that we actually experience something of the power and love of God. And God himself sets the example for us in this because he meets us in our low place, humbling himself by being born, not in a palace, but in a feeding trough. <laughs> He comes down to where we are and minister to us in our weeping, in our tears, by coming in the midst of that weeping and tears and being born humbly as a child in a manger. What does your heart, what does your own heart need to be humbled to receive God's love? Where in your life right now is Jesus calling you to take the low place to receive and experience the depth of his love for you. Perhaps someone has been seeking forgiveness from you. And you have been withholding it from them, thinking to yourself that what they really deserve is your anger, your wrath, that they deserve to experience the pain you feel. Yet God does not dwell in unforgiveness. He doesn't make his home there. Instead, to a people who did not deserve his forgiveness, he came and set them free through his own forgiveness and love. Ask God to show you how to walk in that forgiveness 
if there's if, if that's where your own heart needs to be humbled. Perhaps it's not forgiveness, though, but loving sacrifice to someone in need that God is calling you to. Maybe you've gotten stuck in a pattern of thinking where you believe that the world revolves around you and others were put on the earth to meet your needs. I'm always struck by John's call to repentance where he tells people with two shirts, people in the lowest of positions economically, to give one of those shirts away. Giving away your resources, time, and energy to give these things away and loving sacrifice to others is to do the very thing that our Lord does all the time. The very thing he does in the text in front of us, wherever the humbling of your heart needs to happen. Just remember that God's love is humble. That's what this Christmas season reminds us of. Reminds us of the humility of our God, the humility of our King. Meets people. God's love meets people in the low place. Jesus came wrapped in cloths and laid in a feeding trough. That's right. The one through whom the worlds came into existence spent his first days in a feeding trough. Set your pride aside. Set your pride aside. In fact, set it against that and see how much sense it makes. God's love is humble. God's love is also far reaching. Let me remind you again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It's verse one. I want to remind you uh, that God's love reaches far and wide. God's love for you, the love uh, that will not let you go, extends beyond you to people you don't even know yet. Indeed, let me say it this way. God's love for us is meant to widen our hearts to receive those who are not like us, to welcome them into this love of God. The Magi uh, aren't in this story uh, by accident. The wise men are not in this story by accident. They are in the story because God saw them all the way in the east and wanted them to know about the coming of his salvation into this world. And so he sent them a signal pointing them to this display of his love in the birth of his son. God's love for us in a good sense isn't just about us. The testimony of God and Jesus is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. God's love meets us in our lowest state, but it reaches out through us to others and theirs. Jesus isn't just Israel's king. He's everybody's king. So, so, so listen again. Verse 2. They came saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. In other words, we have come to acknowledge that he is the king, not just of Israel, but he is the king of the world. He's everybody's king. He isn't just an expression of love for Israel but of God's love for men, women, and children throughout the world. So remember when Matthew quotes Jeremiah in verse 18, he is really pointing us to that whole chapter uh, in, Jeremiah, uh, in Jeremiah 31. He wants us to understand Israel's weeping within the context of that whole chapter. He wants us to understand it within the context of the whole chapter. So how far does God's love reach? Well, in Jeremiah 
31, 7 through 9, we read this. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth among among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and he and she who is in labor together, a great company. They shall return here with weeping. They shall come and with pleas for mercy. I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim, my firstborn. God's love is is far and wide. He reaches those far away, reaching the weak and vulnerable and bringing them back into the love of God. This love reached you when you were far away. And this love calls you to receive others who are far away as well. Israel was to learn that God's, uh, that God's reaching them from afar and bringing them back was the same love that would reach among the nations of the world and bring men, women, and children from among those nations to the Lord. It would also be the love that brings in the lame, brings in the broken. Who around you is God calling you to reach out to, to draw them into the love of God for them? Sometimes the very people God wants us to reach are right around us. In this case, the distance isn't calculated in miles, but perhaps it's calculated in language, culture, personality, socioeconomics, age, and the like. Perhaps it's someone in your family, someone who has, distract, who has distanced themselves or whom you have distance in your own heart. I'm not talking about situations in which we have had to set up appropriate boundaries because of sin. I'm talking about cases where you have perhaps written someone off. Just ignore them. For some of you, the folk God wants you to draw in are family members. For others, it's a neighbor. Still others of you, it is someone culturally different from you. And for others, it's someone socioeconomically or intellectually different. Whatever the case, ask God to show you who in your immediate world he wants you to pursue with his love. God's love was so far reaching that it grabbed three men from the east and brought them into the display of his salvation and love. We are not God. We cannot reach everyone, but we are his children. And so our love should be a reflection of his own love. God's love is hum humble. God's love is far-reaching. God's love is caring or shepherding. God knows how to carry us, brothers and sisters, through this broken world. God knows how to shepherd us, how to care for us through the griefs and sorrows of this life. He knows how to help us navigate the evils of this world. God's love is a shepherding love. This is illustrated in our text through the way God cares for his own son, his his savior. Herod wants to kill Jesus. He is, is egomaniacal and doesn't want any threat to his rule or to his legacy as king. And so in verses seven and eight, he tries to trick the Magi into telling him where Jesus is under the guise that he wants to worship him, just as they did. 
It's a lie, of course. He wants to kill Jesus. So what does God do? Well, first in verse 12, he warns uh, the Magi, Magi in a dream not to go back that way and sends them home through another route. Then in verse 13, he comes uh, through an angel to Joseph in a dream and warns him to flee to Egypt until Herod and those who were after Jesus are dead. And after they have been in Egypt for some time, he appears to Joseph again in a dream. And in verse 13 tells him that it is safe to return to the area. Why does Matthew tell us uh, these things uh, in the story? He wants us to understand just how involved God was in making sure that our salvation was secured. He wants us to know that God was intimately involved in the details of ensuring that Herod's evil would not be the final act in the story, just like Pharaoh's actions were not the final act in the story of God's deliverance of his people. The final act will be God. The final act will not be weeping. It will not be tears. It will not be Rachel refusing to be comforted because her sorrow is so deep. No, the final act will be God's. The final act will be deliverance. The final act will be victory. The final act will be peace, hope, love, joy. It is this truth that made the psalmist declare, sing praises, O God. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And it comes because of the steadfast love of God, which will never be taken from us. It comes because of the shepherding hand of God, the providential hand of God, directing our salvation and guiding us all along our journey in this life. So in every circumstance, trust that God is faithful and knows how to lead you through the muck and the mire, as they used to say. Follow him and he will lead you in his love to pass of righteousness for his name's sake. So I ask you, where do you need to trust God's shepherding care right now in your own life? Perhaps you're in a crisis, in your marriage or with your children or at work. Perhaps you're at a place of transition and just need direction and wisdom from the Lord. It doesn't matter what the circumstances, the encouragement is to trust that in each of these places, God has not forgotten you. It's to trust that he will guide you every step of the way toward what produces good for you and others around you. Now, here's the thing about God's shepherding care. His staff is a guiding rod pointing you toward the way you should go. It's also a correcting rod to keep you on the path you are meant to go. Sometimes when, uh, when things are in crises, it's because, it's because we are refusing to follow the Lord's instruction. And his discipline is his way of setting us back on track. Sometimes it's not that God is not giving wisdom. It's just that we don't like the answer he's giving. All this to say, God's care for us is to produce good in us and through us. There is no place in your life where God is not committed to caring for you. He has bound himself in covenant to care for you. This includes your marriages, your parenting, your work, your ministry, all the other areas of your life. God is at work to make his salvation come to expression 
in your life. And nothing can stop him from doing it because his providential hand, his shepherding hand is at work in your life just as it was at work in Jesus' life. This is the most wonderful time of the year because in it we are reminded of the love of God for mourners. We are reminded that for people for whom life creates all sorts of occasions of weeping, all sorts of occasions for tears, God sent forth his son to wipe away those tears, to encourage them that in him is salvation from all the realities that sin and death have brought into this world. That love of God for us that came to us through Jesus Christ our Lord, it's a humble love. It's a far-reaching love, and it is a shepherding love. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what he did. Rejoice, people of God. Rejoice in the salvation that God has won for us. Enjoy this Christmas. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord encourage your hearts as you are reminded uh, this holiday of what Jesus has done.